three, two. Hi, I'm Kelly Gleason. Welcome to our podcast for Pi Day. I am a nurse with a lot of experience working with electronic medical records to best uh, use that data to answer different research questions. And most recently, I've been looking at how nurses can be a better part of informing artificial intelligence tools. Hi, I'm Katie Henry. I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of Computer Science in the Whiting School of Engineering. And my research focuses on how machine learning and data science methods can be applied to medical data. Um, so there's kind of two components there. We focus on what kind of predictive tools or analytics can we do, and then also how can we design clinical decision support systems that work better for clinicians and understanding what those barriers are to making um, clinically meaningful tools. And I'm Jill Slattery. I am a second semester MEN student graduating in May 2020. Uh, this is a second career for me. Prior to nursing school, I was in consulting where I focused primarily on data analytics and technical strategy and transformation. So anything from um, an electronic health record implementation to data warehouse transformations um, and making that data accessible to end users to make data-driven decisions. So our first discussion question today is, what exciting engineering, artificial intelligence, ma machine learning products are currently in use? And I do realize that there's a difference between each terminology, but we're being very broad. And I want to say that if you think about your average intensive care unit pa patient, uh, your average acute care floor patient, there's so many engineering tools in use that it's actually uh, very overwhelming and also an abundance of data constantly being collected in the floor. So those are, just to give you an idea, like massive amounts of tools. But I want Katie to speak to uh, how artificial intelligence is, mo is more recently very, very newly being used to, to better patient outcomes. Mm. So one way that artificial intelligence or machine learning comes in is trying to take these massive amounts of data that Kelly mentioned and figure out what data do I actually need to see now and how do I present it in a way that's informative. So it can be taking a large amount of data and transforming it into a risk score or it could be you know, surfacing an alert. Um, so there's kind of a lot of different ways that machine learning and artificial intelligence can be used to visualize data that's in a really complex, high-dimensional space. So I guess I kind of think of it as, you know, use that as a tool to get the provider the right information at the right time and um, hopefully tell them something new about their patient and not just add to the redundancy and alarms. And I want to give a quick example of how risk scores are usually used because I think what Katie said was important because we actually aren't doing it that well. Think about your average risk score in the hospital. Think about, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the example of the CHAD score, which is pretty uh, common to, to people interested in cardiology because your CHAD score is what calculates your risk for a stroke, your, your need to be on anticoagulation. And what does it look like? If you are a, a woman, you get one point. If you have, uh, if you're over a certain age, you, you get one point. It's really heavily binary that these diseases, you know, 
congestive heart failure at one point when really people have a totally different spectrum of these things. And there's so many other little factors that impact our CHAT score. That's pretty amazing that with all the data that we have and could access, we're still using these really heavily simplistic scores. And uh, an example that, that Katie did not give herself credit for uh, is, is sepsis, where if you think about your traditional sepsis best practice alert, it, it's it was pretty simple and it went off a lot and it, it and it didn't go off other times and, and it was wrong it's a decent portion of the time it was really really simple it was you know what are the vital signs white blood cell counts whereas when you look at tools now being used for sepsis led by the team that Katie's a, a part of uh, led by Dr. Sushi Saria they're becoming much much smarter in how to use all these different little data points that people get Sorry. Yeah, so um, tools like our true score for sepsis takes a lot more of the patient context into account. So when we're looking at that low white blood cell count, we think about is this a cancer patient who's actively on chemotherapy? Um, you know, when we think about the creatinine, we think about do they have chronic kidney disease? Do they have some other comorbidity that could also be impacting it? You know, are they just dehydrated? And you know, we can use that condition on that context to try to improve the precision of estimates and also to target it. So, you know, if you have different patient populations, we don't need one tool that fits everyone because the clinician's not being asked to manually put in values or scroll through all the vital signs and lab values to compute something. The computer can do that for you, you know. So we really tried to integrate it into workflow and to make something that can leverage the power of the full patient context and not just add a lot of noise. Thank you, Katie. I want Jill to take the leadership on the next question because I think that Jill's coming in with a really fresh set of eyes where she's been in the business world. She's seen all that the business world is doing, how far along they are, and now she's entering into the healthcare world and seeing how things are a bit different. In your eyes, Jill, what could we be doing that we are not doing? What surprised you that we are not doing as nurses? Yeah, so um, something that's been really interesting that I've seen in the business world is this focus on a few key themes. So we're focused on you know data-informed decision-making, using real-time data, and then most importantly, using visually appealing dashboards that encourage interaction um, by the end user. And something that you see a lot in the business world is the use of these dashboards to really drive decision-making from the executive level down to the end user. And so coming into nursing and healthcare, you open up any journal article or you're looking at any type of um, data analysis. And comparatively, it's fairly simplistic. You know, we, we stick to our SPSS, to our STATA, and there's nothing wrong with that at all. But you begin to wonder what would be possible if um, we had, you know, the capability to take a large data set of maybe lab values or a certain patient subset and put it into a dashboard that could then be shared a- across the world and that researchers elsewhere working on similar data could then review and interact with and identify new themes and trends and potentially plug in their own data to drive additional research. And so um, I think that's something that that the business world's been doing very well recently. Um, and you know, all you have to do is look to Twitter or some other social media sites to see the engagement of individuals working on data analysis and data visualization. 
I saw a tweet by a physician, and he was actually in, uh, I think, either in New Zealand or Australia, and I know that they're completely different countries, but, <laughs> but it was one of them, uh, and he's like, uh, you know, in my world, I just got a text from my, my doorbell letting, it, letting me know that it was out of battery and needed to be charged when I get home. In uh, hospital world, I just got told that I need to fax uh, proof that my patient with type 1 diabetes needs an insulin pump. A fax. He's like, I, I, don't, I can't even access a fax machine. I, yeah. it, it's amazing. Well, and that um, being able to access data mm-hmm. is a huge barrier because a lot of health systems traditionally have had their data very siloed, yeah. even within departments at the same institution. Uh, I think it's only in the, like, the past five or ten, six years that Hopkins is all on one system for all of their different departments here. And that's a huge barrier if you're trying to extract that data. And and there needs to be more. Like um, Jill, you mentioned having a a worldwide collaboration. And and right now it does still tend to be very siloed by hospital. Or if it is like a bigger national one, it often is at a very like high level of just maybe billing codes, but it doesn't necessarily give you enough information to really be able to dig into it. Uh, I think um, so as... Some of you may, may know, depends how on top of this legislation you, you stay, that originally we had meaningful use legislation, and they've recently renamed meaningful use, which was making sure that, that people are using electronic medical records, that they are documenting certain things we want to make sure are documented. Uh, they changed it, They changed the name of it to promoting interoperabil- interoperability. Mm-hmm. N- never been good at speaking. <laughs> but promoting inter- interoperability, I kind of just call it PI. <laughs> uh, it focuses more on making sure that that information that's with the patient can go easily from place to place. And it's interesting because Hopkins has done a really, really good job. It is amazing that because I was a patient at Hopkins Hospital at Howard County, so that the information all flows across and that my chart gives me that information. But what if I want to leave Hopkins? Or what if I'm in a different state that Hopkins doesn't have a hospital in? Thankfully, I do vacation in St. Pete's, so I got, uh, <laughs> they can see me as a pediatric patient. But if, if I leave the Hopkins area, then that all does not come with me. I would have to open up my my, my chart and go go piece by piece. And so it's good for Hopkins because it encourages you to, to stay within that system at all costs. But I know my friend just recently received care. She lives in Charlottesville, and she had to receive care at Hopkins. They were going to drive three hours back to Hopkins when she had to go to the emergency department for a post-operative complication rather than leave the system and have all that information not follow her. She eventually, they, they realized they could not make it the three hours because it was an emergency, but that's how serious this issue of making sure that data gets from place to place, that how it's being transferred is seamless across systems, uh, it's it's pretty major because you can't easily just transfer it into another hospital's, uh, you know, for example, if, even if two hospitals have Epic, you can't necessarily just transfer one person's information in if it's two completely different medical systems. And and that's a problem. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great point. You know, we often just think of, well, if someone has Epic, they have Epic and we're seamless, but there's so much customization that that occurs now in the technical world that you can start with the baseline system and then you know a couple months later it's going to be totally different um, and I think another important uh, component to think about is just historical data and access to historical information you know electronic medical records really are not that old and so when we think about how 
we have stored historical data from a patient who's maybe been in a system for 35, 40 years, all of a sudden we're, we're dealing with a different data structure. We might not have access to, to some of that historical data. And so really we need to think about how we're going to incorporate that to moving forward. Yeah, and just to emphasize uh, this issue and how it will impact our artificial intelligence tools is that as these tools become smarter, incorporate more pieces of data, if they're missing certain pieces of data or the data that they have is incorrect, for example, if a patient is on warfarin, the warfarin is affecting their INR level, but our EMR has no documentation that they're on warfarin because that happened at a primary care provider. And so we're now thinking that they are at risk for sepsis because the high INR level is one of the things that's pushing them into that risk category. But in in reality, they're on warfarin, then then these are incorrect. And that's just one example of of many that if we're using these tools, but we only have pieces of information. But then I do want to say, on the other hand, if you think about... um, all that you know, places like Google, Facebook are doing in terms of using our data to inform ad decisions. You know, a lot of times they're they're pretty spot on. Uh, they know that you have something before you do, and and they're also dealing with a certain amount of, of error. Uh, so at what point is like what what's is perfect gain in the way of good enough? Yeah, and actually I've, I've heard a lot of computer scientists lament that some of the brightest minds in computer science focus on ad revenues rather than some of these other um, application areas. And, and really, I think a lot of the machine learning and healthcare work has really grown in the past five or so years. Um, and it's, it's really exciting. So they're starting to think about things like, well, what do we do with missing data? Or how do we try to interpolate that missing data? How do we try to use other redundancies in the signal? So like Kelly mentioned, the INR is elevated maybe because this patient's actually on warfarin and the system is starts to think, oh, maybe this is sepsis, but can the system use other indicators? Like maybe the fact that the temperature is still normal, the WBC is still normal, and there's enough other context around there that the system's able to say, very likely not due to um, uh, sepsis, more likely medication. And we see this a lot with things um, in sepsis. We see it a lot for predictions around the time of certain procedures. So like when patients are on dialysis, intermittent hemodialysis, sometimes we'll see that they get a little hypotensive. And a system that's not thinking about the fact that they're on dialysis and what impact that might have on their um, vital signs can often trigger false alerts. So we, we have actually heard from some of the ICU providers that we work with that you know they're getting all these false alerts around the time of dialysis and what's great about learning healthcare systems is we can learn so we can go back and understand okay this is an artifact we need to remove and we need to account for and we can learn from that historical data and make something better i think that that's an excellent point i think i it's it's my kelly preference um to stay around for like I'm trying to think of how to say this, that nurses, when it comes to how nurses can be involved in this, I do not expect nurses to be Katie. We are not computer engineers. Uh, that is a really intense training. It requires a, a certain a, a certain type of mind and such. And uh, 
The way that nurses think, though, is so unbelievably important to informing these tools, to letting uh, the team of engineers knowing things like, well, yeah, of course, this, of course, the numbers are going to be off. That your patient's going to dialysis. Uh, you know, this patient's on a ventilator, and you're using this level. When if the patient's on a ventilator, you should be discounting that, or at the very least, adjusting for it. And so, if nurses are getting scared off by the idea that oh, I, I'm not a computer engineer, I, I'm not in artificial intelligence, then we're really doing, um, I don't say we're doing harm to our patients because that's a little intense, but, but we know so much more than we give ourselves credit for and that when we sit down and talk to engineers and we talk about the, the artifacts that they're getting, these, these issues with their data that aren't making sense, we can contribute so much to the conversation, and we need to be part of the conversation. We need to be working across schools uh, very seamlessly. Oh, I can't be using my hands too much because I'll affect the microphone. <laughs> I, uh, Jill, did you have any thoughts on that before we sign off? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. You know, um, it's funny. The other day, I actually had a data visualization tool pulled up, and I was working with the data set, and someone comes up to me, a fellow student, and goes, oh my gosh, what are you doing? That looks so overwhelming. Um, and I think that's part of the problem, right, is we think of data analysis and what our contributions can be to um, data-informed decision-making, and we find it overwhelming. It's, it is overwhelming to look at all that data and think about how you might synthesize it. But um, the end users do play a really important role. You know, um, you can only do so much with a computer, but you can make adjustments and um, inform your analysis if you actually have the feedback of those who are using it. So I think that's a really important point. Yeah, and then the nurses are really like the frontline people who are, you know, maybe taking the input from the computer and integrating that along with what they already know about the patient to drive forward care. I think one of my visions for where machine learning and AI can go in this is for it to be a way to empower clinicians and to, you know, obviously improve patient care, but, you know, it, it can be another input feedback into your own decision making and monitoring. Yes. I think this has been a really excellent talk. I want to thank everybody for your time, and I want to close with just emphasizing that if you listen to this conversation, it's three people with three different backgrounds. Uh, I, Kelly, have, I don't want to say like I've, I've only ever been a nurse, but uh, I did nursing with my undergraduate degree, which is what I was trained to do, and then I was a, a, a practicing nurse, and now I'm an assistant professor. But I still know that I have to feel